the Song of Solomon. And uh, this message has been burning on my soul for the past several months. And I've just been waiting on when and where. Sometimes we think we know where, but we don't know where. The Lord might have us preach it, but I, I am going to try and do my best to deliver this the way God gave it to me. <clears throat> From Song of Solomon, chapter 3 and verse 6 says, Who is this that comes out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all powders of the merchant? And then to chapter 8 of Song of Solomon in verse 5, it just says this, Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness? Everybody say, up from the wilderness. Leaning on her beloved. I raised thee up under the apple tree. There thy mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bare thee. I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning in this title, Learning to Lean. Learning to lean. Let's ask God to help us today. Lord Jesus, I know you gave me this word. Would you please come today and, 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 and just let me be your mouthpiece, Lord. Let me speak this the way I know that you gave it to me, Lord. Anoint my voice, God. Give me strength, God, and wisdom. God, help me to communicate this revelatory as you gave it to me. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen, amen, and God bless you. You may be seated. Before we Go any further, let me join Pastor Chad and welcome all of our first-time guests today. We're so glad that you came here with us. Amen. And that you chose to worship the Lord with us today. So these two verses represent two very different scenes. Now, they're similar in many ways, but, but they're very, very different. Now, in the first scene, the bride is seen coming up out of the wilderness. That's how it reads in your King James Bible, at least. But the idea in the Hebrew, in the original Hebrew, is that of going into or through the wilderness. So in this first passage, she's going up and into or going through the wilderness. In the second scene, the latter scene, she's seen coming up out of the wilderness, that same wilderness. And so in that respect, they are similar in many ways. But in the first scene, and this is where it gets completely opposite. In the first scene, it's one of celebration. It's one of exaltation and splendor. We see her perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and powder. She's all dressed up. She has put on her very best. <coughs> There's joy. There's music. There's celebration. There's a happy scene. But it's not so in the second. In the second scene is one of condensation and humility. <clears throat> it's also one of intimacy and loving charm. Things can change very quickly in the desert, you see. In one moment, the scene is, is very joyful and happy. The sun is out and there's no storm clouds anywhere to be seen. The weather is good. At this point, there may have been plenty of friends and acquaintances around. They may have been playing their, their, their flutes and their guitars and their, and their psalteries and etc., their harps. They may have been celebrating as she's looking for her beloved. There's music and celebration, but suddenly things change very quickly. The sun goes down in the desert very quickly. And soon her friends disappear and the music stops. 
Because only the bride is called to walk through the desert. And it gets cold at night in the desert, really cold, as the sand in the desert cannot hold much heat. And so it just gets cold as there's no sun there. And while the animals that prey and hunt come out at night time in the desert, and with the loss of friends and the music stopping and the severe cold, things get scary very quickly. She can hear in the distance the howling of the wild animals. Wolves, perhaps, maybe coyotes, as they hunt for something to eat. Tarantulas and other critters that crawl on the ground at nighttime. The scorpions, etc., as they come out at nighttime to eat and to hunt. And it begs the question, what was she doing in the desert in the first place? Why was she there? And... And what was she searching for? The answer is found in our text in chapter 3, Song of Solomon, where he says, By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. I will arise now and go about into the streets, the city in the streets, in the broad ways. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I did not find him. So she wakes up in the middle of the night. She realizes, you know, my spouse, my beloved, my loved one is gone. And she runs out into the street. She runs out of her bedroom and runs down the hallway out of the front doors of her palace. And she's frantically searching for the one that she loves. Her lover, her best friend, her spouse. And, and so she doesn't find him. And so her search leads her into the desert places as she's exhausted her search in the streets. She's looked around under every stone. She's, uh, she's looked down every, every dark corner and she can't find him. And the next time you see her, from that point until then, we see her coming up out of the desert. But there's one thing that's different in the second scene that's absent from the first scene. In the first scene, we don't see her with her beloved. We see her searching for her beloved. But in the second scene, the one of condescension and humility and intimacy and loving charm, we see her coming out of that wilderness with him. And leaning on his arm. There in that desert place was a sacred place of intimacy that was achieved. As she comes out of that scary darkness without a single animal bite. We don't see her shivering for the cold night air. But we simply see her leaning upon her beloved. She leans and rests her head on his strong arm as he leads her out. Of that place. I never meant for you to die in this desert. I just meant for you to come away for a little bit away from the crowds. I meant for you to come away for a little bit to a place that would be out of your control and to a place where you would find me in a way you've never found me before. And there's a call that's going out right now for the church to lean like never before on her beloved. And here is why. Because the world has always had a mindset of self-dependence. It's in one of the most popular rock songs that have ever been written by John Lennon Imagine. You probably have heard this song before a time or two. Let me read to you the words of this song. <coughs> Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. 
nothing to die or kill for and no religion to. No religion to. Imagine all the people living in life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you will join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can, no seed, no, no seed for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world, and then it goes back into the chorus. Now, it sounds nice, sounds like a nice big liberal utopia where without God and without religion and without possessions, we're all just going to join hands and sing kumbaya and everything is going to be perfect and fine. But the problem is this, man has been trying to do that. For millennia now, and we failed. But it was his idea and dream of a world without any disharmony, without war and without hunger. But also a world without religion and certainly a world without a God. <clears throat> it's his idea of what would happen if man were left to himself. Of course, the implication is without God to mess things up. The idea is that it'd be a giant utopia of peace and harmony but self-dependence is the enemy of peace. The only peace that can ever come to this world is the prince of peace. The bringer of peace. And my friend, I'm here to tell you some good news today that that prince of peace has already come. If you're waiting on him to come, you've already missed the boat. He came 2,000 years ago. And he came to bring peace. And think of what happened for a moment whenever the COVID-19 pandemic first hit. At first, people were kind of scared, and, 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 and really nobody kind of knew what to do. We didn't know what was going to happen. But then after a few weeks, maybe a month or so, people uh, began to get bold and brave. And what I heard in, on the news and people in my workplace, et cetera, was people saying this, we're going to get through this. We're going to come out stronger. But God never meant for the desert to be a place of self-dependence. It was a place for us to search for God and to find Him in a way we've never found Him before. Because the general tendency of man is to be self-dependent. We hate relying on other people. Matter of fact, you can look at the maturity progression from childhood to adulthood. It's marked by a continuous uh, getting more independence. And that's a good thing. Whenever your kids are fresh out of the womb, all they can do is eat, sleep, and poop. <laughs> and cry. And they do a lot of it. The first 24 hours in the hospital, if you're a new parent, you're thinking, man, this ain't so bad. Kids are sleeping all the time and... And you take it home, and it's like they know. I'm not kidding. It hasn't been too long ago. I remember. They know I'm home now. You thought you were going to sleep. Thought it was going to be a Hallmark ending, didn't you? If you want to have a baby, you got to first deprive yourself of sleep for several months at a time. And if you can do that, you are, you're, you're, you're good enough to have a baby. Now, I'm, I'm only halfway kidding because you, you, you know, parents, you know that what I'm saying is 100% the gospel truth. And then they get older, they get a few years older and finally begin to sleep all night and you think things are going to be better. And if you're a stay-at-home mom, you don't have any 
any privacy whatsoever. You cannot go to the bathroom without kids clawing at the door. And as much as you love your kids, you cannot wait for your husband to get home so you can have five minutes alone to simply do the dishes. And suddenly that private time of doing the dishes becomes something you look forward to. You think I'm kidding. If you think I'm kidding, it's because you don't have kids or you just forgot what it's like. <laughs> and if you're a stay-at-home mom, uh, veggie tail movies and dinosaur chicken nuggets become your best friend. Because you know, at least I can get, how long are VeggieTale movies? 20 minutes or so? I can get 20 minutes of peace. And I don't care if you've watched the same movie so many times, you've wore it out. You'll do what you can. But as they get older, they become less dependent upon you. And somehow, you're, you, for, you don't forget what it's like, but you forget how it feels to be dependent on constantly. And, and, and how, how, how much of a struggle that it was. When they get to be 8 and 10 years old and they still need you for some things. But not as much as they did before. And they get older and then they get, and then they reach this age where aliens land in your house. And they steal your children and they replace them with these things called teenagers. <laughs> and the only way you know they... <clears throat> The only way you know they exist is because they come out at nighttime to feed. Usually, usually around dinner time. They can smell the food coming from the kitchen. And then they disappear again. And they roll their eyes and they talk about, of course, our kids don't do this because our kids are perfect. Like yours. It really stinks having a preacher as a dad, doesn't it, guys? <laughs> And they need you, but they kind of don't want to admit that they need you. And they love you, but they kind of don't want to be seen with you in public. <laughs> they need you, but they don't need you. And if you're a wise parent, you realize that's normal. Because that's the process of becoming more independent. And at some point in, the, in those teenage years... You start talking to your wife, like Tony and I did. I said, remember when, when they used to fly around the house with, with uh, towels on the back of their necks, playing superheroes, their Superman, in their diapers? Was that just a few weeks ago? <laughs> okay. And you realize, and you start missing those times of, 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 of dependence until they get a job. And then they need you to take them to work and back a lot. And you're happy to do that because, you know, they're, 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 getting, in, they're getting more dependent, more independent. And then they get to be adults, and we haven't reached that place. I don't know what it's like, but I can imagine that they move away. They go to college, and, and, and then you really miss those times. Now, that's, that's a natural process and it's supposed to work that way and our mistake is realizing that in the kingdom of God 
It's also supposed to work that way. When in the kingdom of God, as is usually the case, it's the polar opposite of what's in the natural. Because in the natural, the process of maturity is getting, is getting more independent from your parents. Until you reach a place and age where you, can, where you can move out, you can pay your own bills, you can have your own family, and you can start that process again with your children. But in the kingdom of God, it's the opposite. Spiritual maturity is marked by an intense dependence on God for all things. And the less mature we are, the less dependent we tend to be upon God. 2 Corinthians 3 and 5, the great apostle Paul said this, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Sufficiency means everything we are is because of him. And we are dependent upon him every minute of the day because we need Jesus. Prayer is the ultimate expression of man's dependence on God. But during times of crisis, after we have tried all of our tricks, and after we have tried everything that we know to do, and called all of our friends and done everything, we finally give up and say, well, all we can do now is pray. Because if we really want to admit it or not, here's why we hate being dependent on someone else, even if that someone is God. We can't see him. Oftentimes we can't feel him. Like Job, I looked around, left, right, north, south, east, and west, and I could not find him. But in those times, you got to have faith to say, he knows the way that I take. We hate giving up control of the situation. But at that point is when it becomes a walk of faith when you learn to lean. From Genesis 13 and verse 11 says this, then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. And they separated themselves the one from the other. Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan. Everybody say Canaan. <clears throat> Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent towards Sodom. Now, we, you know, we say, well, Abraham got Canaan. Lot got Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, Canaan was not a good place when Abraham looked towards it. Sodom and Gomorrah was the well-watered area. It was an established city unlike where God led Abraham. As a matter of fact, the word Canaan in and of itself in the Hebrew, do you know what it means? It means humiliated. Abraham allowed Lot, his nephew, to choose which way do you want to go because the land is too small for us. Lot chose the better path by worldly standards at least while Abraham got the lesser part of the deal. Remember this, on top of that, that Canaan was that son of Noah who was cursed by his father for seeing his father's nakedness. In Genesis 9 and 25, it says this, And Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, the servant of servants, shall he be unto his brethren. And from that moment until the time that Abraham first arrived, the Canaanites were wicked, vile people. It was not a place that was blessed. So this territory Abraham dwelt in at the time was cursed, and its people were cursed. They were not living for God. It wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah was cursed. Canaan was also cursed. And the only reason why God didn't, didn't uh, destroy the, the whole area of Canaan too was because he had already given a promise to faithful Abraham. And the blessing outweighed the curse. 
Abraham got humbled. He got humiliated while Lot was worldly and got worldly blessed in Sodom as he sat inside of its rich gates. Well-watered plains, good for crops. An established city with a massive army. Strong walls with watchers on top of while, while Abraham was all by himself with just his wife and his few servants. But look at what happened when trouble hit Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 13, it says this, And the Lord said to Abraham, after that lot was separated one from him, lift up now your eyes and, and look from the place where you are, north, south, east, and west. For all the land that you see, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall your seed be numbered. Arise, walk to the land, the length of it, and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto you. God said, Abraham, as far as you can see, I'm going to give you everything. And you know what? The greatest miracle that Abraham ever saw was not achieved when he walked in the strength of his flesh. But when he realized, man, God, if you don't help us here, we are going to fail. The greatest miracles that we see are when we need them the most. Abraham received a promise of the greatest blessing his seed would inherit in the hour of his deepest need. And one chapter later, just a few days later, watch what happens whenever four kings invade Sodom and Gomorrah and make war with Sodom and Gomorrah where Lot was. Genesis 14 and verse 11. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot. Abraham's brother's son who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abraham the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Emirate, uh, a brother of Eschol, and the brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abraham. And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. Let me ask you this. As Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, as Lot watched the watchers on top of those big walls and worldly gates, as Lot felt safe inside, when trouble hit the world, who saved who? Was it Abraham, who was all by himself with just a few hundred servants? Or was it Lot in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah with thousands of trained armies? Lot should have been the stronger one, while Abraham was the weaker. But remember who rescued who, and we are stronger when we rely and depend on God and let him order our steps and not rely on the strength and the arm of our flesh. We are stronger. Later on in that next chapter in 15 verse 1, it says this. <coughs> After these things, the word of the Lord came into Abraham in a vision, <clears throat> saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now remember, Abraham has just went through with his few hundred servants, and he has taken back Lot, and he's killed those four or five kings, and he's rescued them. And remember, Abraham was all by himself. And this is exactly why God spoke those words to Abraham. Because he was all by himself and afraid that these other kings were going to come after him. But God told Abraham, I am your shield. I am the one you've got to learn to lean on, Abraham. That's why I led you into this humiliated place of Canaan, this God-forsaken territory. That's why it doesn't seem like there's any crops, you know, like there's any good soil for your crops. That, that's why it seems like, you know, there's no place to feed your crops or, or to feed the animals. And, but yet God multiplied Abraham and God was with Abraham. But Abraham had to learn that trials and valleys are an opportunity to know God more 
more intimately. Abraham had to learn because God had a great plan for Abraham. And so God put him through a lot of bad things and a lot of difficult spots where he had to learn to lean upon the Lord. God, you're all I've got. It's not in my strength, God. It's in you. And as the bride in that second scene learned to lean, we too must learn to lean and walk by faith. God has not called us to be self-dependent. He's called us to be spirit-dependent. In Genesis 26 and verse 12, it says this, that Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. Now, this was in Egypt when Isaac was in Egypt. Of course, Egypt was not the territory of promise that God had promised to Abraham. Far away from where he wanted to be, he sowed and he reaped a hundredfold in a place where he shouldn't have reaped anything at all. Everybody else around him is going through a famine. Nobody else. There was a famine in the land at, at, at this time in Genesis 26. Nobody else was reaping, but here Isaac is sowing and he's pulling out so many crops he doesn't know what to do with them all. And here's why. Because God's economy works different than ours. When bad things happen, when the market crashes, when unemployment rises, no matter who's in power, God is no more out of resources than when things were great. The storehouses of heaven never run dry. You may need to remind yourself of that at some point this year. Or in the near future, God's storehouses never run dry. And as long as I can stay faithful to God, as long as I can stay faithful to God in my giving, as long as I'm giving God my everything, he promised, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging bread. When I needed bread, he caused it to come down from heaven. When I needed water, he sprang it. He caused it to come out of a rock. When I needed money, he pulled it out of a fish's mouth. When I needed a miracle, Moses stretched out his rod over the Red Sea. When Lazarus was dead, Jesus simply said, Lazarus, come forth. Come on, somebody. God is never out of resources. Heaven's storehouses never run dry. He's never out of resources. But we often do as they did in the days of Babel. In Genesis 11, after God had just destroyed the earth by a flood, and they said, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Of course, you know what they wanted to do since God had just destroyed the earth by a flood. Now they're saying, we want self-governance. From that time until now, there is a Babylonian spirit that has risen in the earth that is independent from God and will not be subject to his laws or his governance. Babel was about self-dependence. We don't need God. Like John Lennon's song, Imagine. Imagine a world without God, and we think it's going to be some great utopia if my political party comes to power or if, if this person is the leader. You know what? The donkey is not the answer, and neither is the elephant. The answer is the lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. That is the only answer for our world today. Literally, the entire story of man's history is man striving 
to achieve life and governance apart from God. And there seems to be a similar struggle in the church, whether we realize it or not. We celebrate. We want to celebrate when times are good and things are going smoothly, just like that woman did when she was going into the wilderness with all of her friends and all of her music and all of her perfume and all of her frankincense and the sun shining and the sky was, uh, you know, the sky was beautiful. We like to celebrate during times like that. But those times when things are not going so smoothly are the times when we rely deepest on God. Think about it another way. What did Israel do whenever they grew cold towards God and they got sick of the prophet Samuel? God's plan was always for Israel to be a nation unlike any other. You're not like those other nations. You don't need a king. What you need is a prophet because a prophet is not a politic, a politician. A prophet hears from me and he brings you my word. And I can choose my prophets. I can anoint them. And they don't, they don't have any irons in the fire as it were. They don't care if you like them or not. They're just prophets. They're there to bring the word of God. That's the way it should have been. I wish to God we could have leaders like that again. Thank God we got them in the church. But what did they say? They said, give us a king. Like the other nations. And Samuel went in. Of course, he felt rejected by God. And do you remember what God told Samuel? They haven't rejected you. They have rejected me. Before God rejected Israel, they first rejected him. It's often been said that those kings led them into apostasy, and that would be true. Matter of fact, after you know, you got Saul, then you got David, then you got King Solomon. After Solomon's reign, the, the kingdom was split between, in, between the north and the south of Judah and Israel. Judah had some good kings. They had some bad kings. Israel didn't have any good kings. They were all wicked apostates. They all were idol worshipers, every single last one of them. And that's why Israel went into captivity like a few hundred years before, before Judah did. But really, those kings did not lead them into apostasy They were already apostate at that point after they asked God for a king. God told the Samuel, they've rejected me, not you. God wanted them to be a people led by prophets and by God's spirit. Instead, they wanted a king that they could physically see and could control instead of one they would have to trust. They wanted a leader that they could troll and see instead of one they could not see and one they would have to trust. Build us a calf, Aaron. And they weren't saying, this is the God of Egypt. They were saying, this is Jehovah. We don't want a God that we, don't, that we can't see, that we can't feel, that we don't know where he's at. We want a God we can see. We want a God we can touch. We want a God that we can control. We can, we can know how big it is. We can point, well, there's our God over there. We're just like all the other nations. It was an independent spirit that seeped into Israel. And before we criticize too quickly, isn't it our tendency to be the same way? We hate to lean. We hate to wait. We hate to wait for direction. We hate to not know what's around the corner. So we take things into our own hands and tend to be self-led instead of spirit-led. But self-governance is the enemy of revival. And what God is getting ready to do in the earth. He needs a church that is 110% spirit-led. And not self-governed. 
He needs us to be dependent like never before. Learning how to lean. In the leaning is where the intimacy is achieved. Just as the bride came out of the desert leaning on the arms of her beloved and a clear intimacy is strongly implied, that is where God is leading us in this hour. Moses, on his way up that mountainside, comes across this site for 40 years. He'd been you know, making his way up that same little path. You know, 40 years, I imagine it was at least every day, maybe more than once a day. Making his way up this path, Mount Horeb, was just another mountain like any other in that backside of the desert until he saw a sight that he had never seen before. This time it was different. This time God interrupted his schedule. It was a burning bush that burned but was not consumed. And you know that story of Moses and the burning bush. <coughs> God began to reveal his plan to Moses. Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But at some point in that conversation, Moses thought it would be a good, good idea to argue with God. And this is what he said. I can't do it. I'm slow of speech. Now you can read in the book of Acts where the, the Acts actually wrote of him that he was mighty in speech, mighty in deeds. But whether this was an excuse or not or whether God touched his lips, I don't know. But what he was saying was, Pharaoh won't listen to me. I'm not enough. Now, this was the polar opposite of what Moses thought was going to happen 40 years prior to that. Remember, whenever, uh, you, you know, the story of how Moses was brought up and he was weaned by his mother. It was at that point that his mother probably taught him there is only one God. Egypt is going to teach you there are thousands of gods, but there is only one God. God drew you out of the water and he has a special purpose for you. You are going to be the deliverer. And that was the message that he grew up thinking. And whenever he's 40 years old, he's got the world by the tail. He's popular in Egypt. He's not, you know, he's the, you know, he's, he, he, he lives in the palace. And he tried to be the deliverer before God was ready for him to be the deliverer. And he killed that Egyptian. And he slew him. And when Moses saw that he was going to be slew and, 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 and probably murdered by Pharaoh was the only reason why he left Egypt to go into, into the backside of the desert. What Moses failed to recognize was that God does not need your strength. He needs your weakness. Moses did not understand that until years later when he would be leading the children of Israel through into the desert. Well along his way of fulfilling his life's calling. And because his whole life, the first 80-something years, he spent thinking, God needs my weep. God needs my strength. God needs me to be strong. He needs me to be educated. There's a reason why he spared me. He drew me out of the water. He's, he's taught me all these things. I'm smart. I know everything. I'm, I'm good-looking. I'm handsome. I'm this, I'm that, I'm that, and this. And for the next 40 years, God had to spend teaching Moses that you're really not the person you think you are. Because no matter how strong we are, we're never enough to do what God has called us to do. Moses was ready to give God his strength 40 years earlier in Egypt. But God was not ready yet because Moses was not ready yet to give God his weakness. We can't achieve what God wants to achieve on the strength of our fleshly abilities or skills. It will literally never be enough. Jesus told those 12 disciples, unlearned and ignorant, he said, without me, you can do nothing. Well, there's a lot we can do. We can do a lot to mess things up. 
We can, you know, we can, we can get fancy lights and we can get the best singers and the best musicians and the best preachers and the best building. And we can do all those things, but all of those things will not profit the person who comes in and needs to be set free by the power of the gospel. We can't achieve what God wants us to achieve in the strength of our flesh. We've got to learn to lean. In our weakness, God is made strong through us. Those who won't give God their weaknesses are destined to fail. That's why God got so angry with Moses. Remember, he got angry. God was almost ready to give up on him. Fine, just go. You know, your, your brother Aaron, if it wasn't for God, you know, even then Moses just wasn't getting it. Moses wasn't ready to give God his weaknesses. Not yet. Despite that, God still used him because God knew that he had a plan to get Moses to realize this. But that's why God got so angry with Moses. God knew Moses would fail God's agenda unless he came in and into himself. It took Moses 40 years of his life to be strong enough to be the deliverer. But it took God another 40 years to make him weak enough to be the deliverer. You're never strong enough to do what God has called you to do. You must be weak enough. God wrestles with men to get their weakness, not their strength. God does not need our abilities. I mean, this is the God that can cause a donkey to talk eloquently. You can't glory about your abilities and skills in front of the God who gave you those abilities and skills. You can't say, I'm so strong, I'm so handsome, I'm so smart, I can sing so well, I can preach so good, I can do this, I can do that, everybody likes me, I've got charisma, I'm a people person, they say I'm a natural leader, fine, good, all those things are great, but God doesn't need any of it, because it takes God about two and a half seconds to pour all of that into somebody else. Just like that. So God needs our weakness. He's already strong enough all by himself. He's already smart enough all by himself. He's already powerful enough all by himself. But we must be weak enough to realize, Lord, I need you. And weak enough to get on our faces every day and say, God, I need to be filled with the power of the Spirit today. Because I'm not smart enough. I'm not handsome enough. I'm not good looking enough. I don't have enough charisma. I need God. Self-sufficiency always fails God's agenda. God cannot use me when I'm strong. He can only use me when I'm weak. We've got to learn to lean. 2 Corinthians 12. I'm almost done. Just bear with me for just a few more minutes. Paul said this. And lest I should be exalted above measure, there, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. The messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Now, we don't know what that was, but most theologians agree that it was some kind of infirmity in his flesh. Paul called it a thorn in my flesh. I imagine that he, if they had cell phones back then, he would have picked up his Android phone. His Samsung Galaxy S10. And called Brother Timothy, who also had an Android phone. <clears throat> Said, Brother Timothy, 
I want you to pray for me. I want you to agree with me. Called Brother James up, who wrote in James 5, if any of you need healing, let them call for the elders of the church, and he shall be healed. Paul probably opened up in his scroll. See, James, you wrote this. It says that. In, it says it right here. I want you to pray for me, and God's going to heal me. And he prayed. The man who had prayed for thousands to get their healing never got his. Paul didn't get it until God answered him why. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect, not in your strength, not in the things that you can do, Paul, but in your weakness. And Paul goes on to say, most gladly, I am glad for my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You understand what he's saying? He's saying that I've got all these revelations and I've got all these things, but God still has a greater depth of anointing. And I cannot get that depth of anointing unless I walk in weakness. I can't get that unless I learn to lean. I've got to learn to lean. I can't hate the things that God puts into my life that makes me lean more upon him because in my, my weakness, Christ is made strong. The times when I've experienced the greatest depth of joy in the spirit was during my times of biggest weaknesses and trials. And I cried out to God for help. Lord, I don't have enough faith right now. God, I don't have enough joy right now, but I need your spirit. I need your strength. God, I need your joy. And I tarried there in prayer until the Lord filled me and endued me with what he needed me to be. And suddenly I'm emptied of all myself and all of my abilities and all of my skills and talents. And now God says, now I can use you because you've got the junk out of you. You've got the flesh out of you. You've got the babble out of you. You've got the dependence out of you. Let us build us a tower. Let us build us a golden calf. Take this away from me, God. I don't want this. Oh, but God is saying, that's the thing that I'm causing you to lean on. Because there's a greater anointing. And lastly, from Hebrews 11 and 21, it says this, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped, watch this now, leaning upon his staff. Jacob, a man strong in the flesh. He, in matter of fact, he was strong enough so much and so filled with himself, he challenged God to a wrestling match. I mean, there are some men I wouldn't challenge to a wrestling match. But challenge God to a wrestling match. Come on, God, put it down here on the mat. I mean, seriously. Roll up your sleeves, God. Fight me like a man. I'm not kidding. I mean, he was some man filled with himself. <clears throat> but during that wrestling match, God did something for Jacob that Jacob despised at first. God touched the hollow of his thigh, and Jacob forever had a limp. Watch this now. Jacob, the strong man, the deceiver, the one who challenged God to rest him at what we would call a real man's man. The, the thigh muscle was the biggest muscle in his body. 
God touched the thing that was the greatest source of Jacob's pride, his strong, muscular, young, healthy body. And it's important to note that God did not destroy Jacob, although he obviously could have easily done that. But instead, he gave Jacob a weakness that was visible to all, including himself. It was a weakness that Jacob could not easily forget. Every time he walked, he was reminded of that weakness. And look at what Hebrews says the end of his life was like. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning upon his staff. Somewhere along the line, that young muscular boy who just got out from a wrestling match with God found a staff that he would forever have to learn to lean on. Every time he took a step, he had to learn to lean on that step. He had to learn to lean on that staff. Every time he took a step, he would limp, and he would limp along. He had to, he, you know, had to hobble along behind everybody else, the man that you could run. Had to learn to lean. Jacob's weakness became the source of his dependence upon God. And by it, he learned to walk by faith when he learned to lean. And that's why Hebrews says that he blessed the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, a double portion that Joseph got. You see, Jacob wasn't ready to do that in the spirit years earlier when he was strong in his flesh. You know when he was ready to do that? After his whole life, he had spent hobbling, learning to lean on that staff. After he had his young wife, Rachel, die, you know, given, you know, uh, his, his, his uh, young, beautiful wife, Rachel, died, giving birth to Benjamin. After he had had all these things happen to him, Laban cheating him for 20 years. I mean, it's one thing after another. And God was, was wrestling with Jacob, not in a physical way, but in more of a spiritual way. God was asking Jacob, I want you to give me your strengths. You've already done that, but I want you to give me your weakness too. You're not strong enough to do what I'm calling you to do in the flesh. And so Jacob, somewhere along the way, he finally figured it out. Oh, I see it now. This, this source of this thing that I despise, Jacob learned to embrace it. And when he learned to embrace it, he did things in the spirit that he could never have done before. And I prophesy to you right now that if you will learn to lean today, you will do things in the spirit that you never thought you could could ever do because God doesn't care about your strengths and abilities he wants your weakness God's got this and he has a plan I don't care what Congress does I don't care what laws they enact I don't know what's going to happen be it good be it bad be it anywhere in between I don't know what's going to happen but I do know this there's a revival coming I hear the sound of abundance of rain they are going to come back the backsliders are going to come back and when they come back they need to find a church that has learned to lean on God Let's stand to our feet today. Oh, what is it, the weakness in your life today? Maybe you prayed for God to take it away. This is the word for you today. You got to learn to lean. Maybe he will take it away at some point. I don't know. But I do know this. If you'll learn to lean, if you'll learn to lean, you'll do things in the spirit that you could never have done without the staff to lean on. Lift your hands right now and just call upon the Lord right now. Come on, let your voices out for just a few moments. Come 
I'm going to open up these altars. I hope you come and let God talk to you. I hope you'll come and learn to lean upon the Lord. Hallelujah.